You have heard it said, there's no such thing as a dumb question. But I say unto you, that's not true and that's a dumb statement. (laughs) Or maybe you have heard it said, there's no such thing as a bad question. But I say unto you, that's not true and that's a bad statement. You know, life is funny. You spend the first half of your lifetime asking questions and the last half of your life questioning life. We spend so much of our lives asking questions. Hopefully, we're not asking dumb questions. Hopefully, we're not asking bad questions. But we do have a lot of questions, don't we? By the way, that was a question. Kind of reminds me of the father and son who went fishing and they had been out on the water for some time and they really hadn't caught much. So there was time for the son to reflect and at some point uh, during their time together that afternoon, the son looked at his father and he said, Dad, why is the sky blue? Father thought about it for a minute. He said, don't rightly know, son. Time went by a little bit longer. And the son said, Dad, how does this boat float? Father thought about it for a minute, reflected, and he said, Don't rightly know, son. Still a little bit later in the conversation, the son said, Dad, are we fishing in the right spot? Father looked around at the empty boat, thought about it for a minute, and said, Don't rightly know, son. At some point in time, the boy began to worry that he was bothering his father with so many questions. And he says, Dad, does it bother you that I'm asking you so many questions? And the father said, of course not, son. If you don't ask questions, how are you going to learn anything? (laughs) (laughs) Questions. We got them. And maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons why you're here today is that you have some unanswered questions. It's really the the topic for our conversation here, Mark chapter 12. Uh, If you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at three questions in particular. We're going to look at a question that everybody has. We're going to look at a question everybody should have, and then we're going to look at a question that perplexed everybody who talked to Jesus that particular day. Mark chapter 12. Let's pray and ask the Lord to answer our questions. Father, we thank you that you have provided the answers through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would answer our questions today according to your will, through the love of your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 12, let's get some answers to our questions. We'll begin reading in verse 18 of Mark chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. So the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. 
in the resurrection when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as far as the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. First question, is there life after death? The Sadducees had a question for Jesus. The Sadducees were one of the predominant Jewish political parties at that time. And the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. By the way, this doesn't work with the Pharisees because the Pharisees weren't there, I see. But, uh, so the, the Sadducees asked Jesus a question, and it was a trick question. It was a trap that they were hoping he would fall in. The real question had nothing to do with this poor woman who was married to seven guys, seven brothers, and had no tri- children. The real question was, is there a resurrection? Is there life after death? And the Sadducees thought that they knew the answer. They weren't asking this question because they were approaching him in humility. They were not asking this question because they needed to know the answer. They were asking this question fully believing that they had the answer. They were asking this question, really, I believe, in an effort to demonstrate their own supposed intellectual superiority. Tim Keller says this, and I quote, Notice that Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death like the Greeks do, on the idea of an immortal part of us. Jesus did not hang the hope of life after death on anything in us or an immortal part of us. Rather, he rests in the commitment of God to us. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was something that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could cling to. This is a very powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who cannot, at our death, scrap that which is precious to him. Close quote. The Sadducees thought that they had devised a cute little trick question that would trap Jesus. Au contraire. Jesus saw their silly little made-up hypothetical question, question and raised them with the true story from Moses of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In terms of social media catfights today, Jesus totally owned them. And just to make sure that everybody who was listening to Jesus understood what had just happened, Jesus circled back around. Did you see the last thing he said to the Sadducees? You are badly mistaken. When he first talks to them, he says, Is this not the reason you're mistaken? And now by the time he finishes his argument from Scripture, he says, you are badly mistaken. He wanted everybody to know that the Sadducees were wrong. There is life after death, and we had better be preparing for it. Do you have a question today about whether there's life after death? Well, I can tell you what Jesus' answer is. 
The answer is yes. There's life after death. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, now I have two other questions for you. My questions echo Jesus here in verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus spoke to them, Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And so I ask you, are, are you like the Sadducees? Do you not know the scriptures? Do you not know the power of God? If you don't know the scriptures, if you don't know the power of God, then you too, like the Sadducees, are on the road to being badly mistaken. I know that some of you are in a time of waiting. I know I am. If you're like me and you're in a time of waiting, find your answers. Find the peace that you long for. Find the security the tenacity that you need to hang on in the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures. The psalmist says this in Psalm 130, Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. It's one thing to wait, it's another thing to wait with your hope in his word. Some of you are in a time of great need. I know I am. If this is you, if you're like me, if you're in a time of great need of the power of God, find your miracle, find your healing that you long for, find the tenacity that you need to hang on in the power of God. So you may say, well, that all sounds good, Brother Kevin, but what does that actually mean? How do I get to know the Scriptures? How do I get to know the power of God? That's a good question. Way to go. So glad you asked that. But first, I have a few questions for you. Are you, are you serious when you ask that question? Are you serious about the Scriptures? Are you serious about knowing the power of God? Are you spending consistent time in the Word so that the Lord can speak to you? Are you spending consistent time on your knees so that you can speak to Him? Are you building your relationship with the Lord? Brian Bill said this, and I think we all need to hear it, and I'm going to quote him here. He says this, The Sadducees focused on social status more than the Scriptures. They picked and chose what they wanted from God's Word. They probably had the Torah memorized. Time out. The Torah... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I don't know if you've checked in your Bible lately, but that's five big books. Most of the Sadducees had that memorized. They were serious about the Word, but it had not tenderized them or their hearts. They claimed to accept the authority of Moses, but missed that he taught this most fundamental important concept that life continues after death. They missed that. Do you know the scriptures? Are you in them every day? Make sure you are doing whatever you can to become a student of the word. Close quote. That's Brian Bill who said that. So take inventory, brothers and sisters. If you're not in the word on a daily basis, it's because it's not your priority. In our American lives, I have found that people generally do what they want to do. We're different from the rest of the world. A lot of the world spends their life in subsistence living, scraping to get by, just trying to make it. But not in America. 
We have what we need. We have what we want. And in America, we generally do what we want to do. And if you're not reading the Bible, it's basically because it's not important to you. It's not a priority. Where you spend your time and money reveals your priorities. And if you're not spending your time in the Word, it's because it's just not that important to you. But Brother Kevin, I can't seem to incorporate daily Bible time and prayer. Can you help me? Yes. That's another good question. By God's grace, I believe I can. I have not always been what I should have been in this area of Scripture reading. But I believe that there are others here in the fellowship who will do all that they can to help you. I will help you. Brother Ken will help you. Reach out. Let's get going on this. And I'm going to give you two practical tips on how to do this. Here's the first practical tip to reading your Bible every day. About a year ago, one of our teens, Sailor Rudley, came to me and we were discussing this. and, And we came to the conclusion that if we will commit to not read anything else before we read at least a chapter in the Word every day, then we can establish that habit of daily Bible reading. That's a five-minute commitment. If you can't find that five minutes in your get-up routine, then you need to get up five minutes earlier. And that five minutes, that one chapter, if you will commit to read the Word before you read anything else, that can turn into a beautiful habit stacking that can lead you to reading two, three, maybe four chapters a day. It's a five-minute commitment, y'all. Here's the second practical tip for reading your Bible every day. Ask for help. Ask one of your brothers or sisters here in the congregation to be your accountability partner. Ask me. I'll check in with you every day. Sometimes we just don't ask the right questions. Reminds me of the salesman who walked up to the front door. He saw a little boy sitting on the front steps, and so he asked him, is your mom home? The little boy said, yes, she's home. Salesman proceeds to go on, ring the doorbell. Several times, no response. He turns to the little boy, and he says, I thought you said your mom was home. The little boy says, she is, but this isn't my house. (laughs) I, I guess really the salesman was asking the right question, but... He didn't ask it in the right way. The Sadducees certainly asked good question, but they didn't ask it in the right way. Now let's look at somebody who asked the question in the right way. And that leads us to the second question. The first question, is there life after death? Second question, since there is life after death, what about the life we're in now? What is the greatest commandment? What obligations? What responsibilities? What do we owe God? What is he expecting from us. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, Which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important 
than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to ask him. No one dared to question him any longer. This is the word of the Lord. What's the most important commandment? Once again, back to Tim Keller. Quote, Jesus shows us that love actually defines the lawful life. He shows us that the law actually defines the loving life. When Jesus says all the laws boil down to love God and neighbor, he is saying we have not fulfilled the law by simply avoiding what the law prohibits, but we must also do and be what the law is really after, namely, love. The whole purpose of the law is love. Close quote, Tim Keller. Do you love God with all your heart? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you long for revival in this land? I know I do. And I'm committed to pray every single day for revival until the Lord grants that request and sends us revival. Or he takes me home. Or he comes to meet us. We desperately need it. Loving our neighbor, revival would be sweet. Please allow me to tell you just a little bit about the Welsh revival of 1904. The Welsh revival of 1904 was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church and the peoples of Wales. That it spread around the world, and it truly can be called the last great revival of global proportions. By some accounts, it began in a tiny little rural village that was 15 miles from the nearest train station. This is 1904. This is before roads and superhighways where the railroad basically was civilization. This little town, 15 miles from the nearest train station by the name of New Quay. The local pastor, Reverend Joseph Jenkins, had read Andrew Murray's book, With Christ in the School of Prayer. He began pleading for an awakening in his own heart and those of his congregation. And in that spirit, he assembled the young people of the village for a Sunday morning prayer service. And when Brother Jenkins asked for testimonies, a new convert by the name of Flory Evans stood and said with a tremor in her voice, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. Those words struck the group like an electrical charge. It was later described as a fire igniting in the room. And soon, those young people, most of them aged 16 to 18, traveled all the way through Wales as the human conveyors of a burning revival that brought an estimated 100,000 people into the kingdom. One young man, Evan Roberts, became the primary vehicle revival, but the revival spark was provided by young Flory Evans. And if we would say her words as earnestly as she did that day, we'd all have a bit of the Welsh revival in us. I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. What does it mean to love your neighbor 
as yourself. This command is found in Leviticus chapter 19. And if you look at the context of Leviticus 19, if you look at everything else in that chapter, you will realize that God did not just give us this basic concept of loving your neighbor as yourself and then let us fill in the blanks. He gave us specific instructions on what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 10 of chapter 19, he says, We're to care for the poor. We're not to steal. We're not to lie. We're to be fair in our business dealings. We are to care for the deaf, care for the blind, deal justly with all, avoid slander, not jeopardize the life of your neighbor, not hate your brother in your heart. Listen to this one. Rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his and your good. That's in verse 17. And not take revenge and not bear a grudge. These are the ways we demonstrate loving our neighbor as ourselves. God does not leave it to our imaginations as to what he means when he says we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Have you noticed the new role that our sister Tammy Harris is providing here for us at Blackman Baptist? She's our outreach coordinator, and she would love to have you get plugged in on specifically helping our neighbors as ourselves, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Talk to her. Do your priorities and actions reflect what you love? Yes, they do. We have a tendency to think of our priorities as things we're going to do, but I say to you that your priorities are what you are doing and what you have done. Do you really love the Lord with everything in you? First question, is there life after death? Second question, what's the greatest commandment? How are we to live our lives now? Third commandment, or third question for the day, what in the world was David talking about? Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David himself calls him Lord. How then can, this, can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, Jesus is having a bit of fun with the scribes. You will remember how he totally owned and schooled the Sadducees. Now it's the scribes' turn. And Jesus has a question for them about the Messiah. And you see the irony of this, right? The Messiah is asking them a question about the Messiah. And the question is, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? You see, the Jews were looking for an earthly king, small k, earthly king. And by their way of thinking, the son of David would be a descendant of David, and he would be a man who would be a great conqueror, and so Jesus asked them then, if that's the case, why does David then refer to him as my Lord? Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, the mighty Psalm 110, the psalm that is most quoted in the New Testament. It is such a strange and beautiful and mysterious psalm. I've read it several times and I struggle with the meaning. And I thought, well, I'm going to memorize this. Maybe that will help me understand it. This is how it goes. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has declared an oath and He will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, He will lift up His head. So Jesus ties the scribes up in knots by asking them a question, referring back to Psalm 110, David's psalm. And honestly, this can tie me up in knots too. What is He saying? Who's talking to whom? Are we eavesdropping on the conversation between God the Father and God the Son? Yes, we are. And it's so beautiful. I still have questions about what this psalm means, but I see three promises that God the Father makes to His Son Jesus. I see the promise of His expanding kingdom. I see the promise of His eternal pattern, of His eternal priesthood according to the pattern of Melchizedek. And then there is the promise of total victory. Jesus is going to win it all. One of the best parts of this scripture here in Mark is found in verse 37. The crowds were just loving this interaction, this verbal jousting between Jesus, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Do you see it there in verse 37? It says, and the large crowd was listening to him with delight. So when I read this, I once again have to ask you, are Are you delighting in the words of Jesus? Back to the Psalms, Psalm 1 to be exact. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers? Here it is. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. Are the scriptures your delight? Are you thinking about them day and night? So we have some questions for Jesus. We're also going to have some questions from Jesus. Do you have questions for Jesus? Is that why you're here this morning? Maybe one of your questions is, if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe one of your questions is, why didn't God stop the abuse I went through as a child? Maybe one of your questions is, How would God allow my friend or loved one to die? Maybe your question is, how do I be saved? These are all good questions. And dear friends, now is the time to ask these questions. Now is the time to get these answers. Because there is a time coming when the dynamic of your relationship between that relationship between you and God is going to change. And instead of you asking Jesus questions, he's going to be asking you some questions. We're going to go from questions for Jesus to questions from Jesus. Questions like, uh, what did you do with your life? Did you waste it? Questions like, did you keep the greatest commandment? Did Did you love God with all your heart? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? Questions like, did you place your faith and trust in me and me alone? Oh, and just make sure this. That when Jesus gives you this final exam, he already knows all the answers. He knows your answers. 
Are you ready? Are you ready to take the test? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have provided salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. I quote him when he said to the disciples on the night of the Last Supper, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I thank you, Lord, that you have provided one true way of salvation, one true way of reconciliation to you, and you did it through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that you have made it quite clear in Scriptures, in both the Psalms and Isaiah and in Romans, that there is none righteous, no, not one. We have all wandered away. We have all fallen short. And I thank you, Lord, that you also told us that there has to be a penalty paid for our sins. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So yes, we are sinners, but we throw ourselves on you and we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness. And we ask, Lord, that you would interpose your precious Son's blood on our behalf so that we can know true salvation in you and you alone. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.